maybe it's just a long game of telephone. We're missing some of the details here. And maybe he really did find the fountain of youth. Maybe. Maybe. Interesting. (laughs) That's so cool. But anyways. This is the Exploring the National Parks podcast with Dirt in My Shoes. My name is Ash, and I'm a former park ranger and the founder of Dirt in My Shoes. I think that the parks are best seen from the trail, and I'm here to make national park trip planning easy. And I'm John. I carry the kids on the trails, I tell stories, and notice all the things that Ash doesn't care about much, like trees. Join us as we show you around America's spectacular national parks. We're sharing our favorite places, fun facts, adventures, and misadventures. And we'll even throw in a little trip planning. Let's start exploring. Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) This is our last episode of 2023. Weird. I know, it is weird. Guess what I'm doing this winter? Skiing. I'm learning how to ski. <laughs> yeah. A little that's... late for a Utah oh, coming from someone who still needs to learn. Yeah. But you're <laughs> naturally good at everything. So John's one of those people where it's like, I've never skied before. And then he straps on skis and he's like looking like a pro down the mountain. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> I'm the clumsy elephant <laughs> that just can't. I don't know. But you're so cute when you do it. Yeah. Something like that. So. I decided I wanted to learn to ski this winter, and so that was my Christmas gift to myself was a season pass and a ski rental. And It's going to be awesome. Yeah. You're going to have so much fun. I love skiing. I still can't do it yet because of my back from my yeah. back surgery, so I'm I'm holding off. But Ash, by time, this time next year, is going to be a total pro. Here's the thing. We cross-country ski. Right. And we do good. Yeah. Like we do good with that. And sometimes we hit some really fun downhill sections. And supposedly it's harder to go downhill on cross-country skis than regular skis. That's it's, what I've been told. Yes. It can be a little challenging because so, those cross-country skis don't have the uh, leverage it there's feels no, like. There's like no maneuverability. Yeah. I feel like everybody looks clunky in cross-country skis. <laughs> so I'm really excited. That's what my winter is going to be, hopefully. If we get enough snow. Yes. So, yeah, that's my plans. Now, here's why I am a Utah who doesn't ski. Little known fact, when I was in high school, so I play the piano. I've played the piano since I was really, really young, and I majored, I started majoring in piano in college, and then I changed my mind and decided I hated my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was really miserable. And so, but anyway... So while I was in high school, like my senior year of high school, I was prepping to go to college for piano. And Mm -hmm. so my piano professor, who was my teacher at the time, was like, you can't do anything that's going to hurt your fingers or your arm or anything. Because it was like the season, the winter season right before college. Right. And lo and behold, I went snowboarding (laughs) against his wishes. And my friend ran into me she barreled into me and knocked me backwards and i broke my wrist yeah and so i couldn't play the piano for like almost three months i yeah it was not good you're a cautionary tale i'm a cautionary tale (laughs) and i just really haven't gotten back on anything since then except for cross-country skis so right there you go but this is the year this is my year it's not like you have to apply for college anymore no nobody cares 
I can make YouTube videos with a broken wrist. So exactly. I can record a podcast with a broken wrist. Now it's just a cool gimmick. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, what are you doing this winter, John? This winter, I will be, I'm buying a cider press. And so maybe I'll buy some apples and press my first apples, press my yeah, first cider. He's really on a cider press kick right now. No, I'll tell you what you're doing this winter. John, every winter, builds like a giant sledding hill for our kids in our backyard. Right. That's like his big project. Because usually. our property is super flat. And yeah, so I have to make our like own a, hill. Yeah, but it's really fun. So. Yes, it's awesome. And my kids, they've named the mountain Mount Rainier twice in a row. Yep. And it's going to be awesome. And they'll be get on there this year. And now that they're a little older, maybe they'll go further. Yeah. Cool. Not be as wussy. Yes. So, yeah, that's our winter. But today we're talking about Dry Tortugas National Park, specifically the fun facts about Dry Tortugas National Park. Way warmer. Way warmer. Yeah. This is where you want to go when you don't want to be in northern Utah in the yes. middle of December. <laughs> so, yes, we are Florida dreaming. We're going to Dry Tortugas for this episode. And Dry Tortugas is one of the hardest national parks to get to. Yes. It's very remote, but it is so cool. And honestly, this might be the fun facts episode that I'm the most excited about. Oh, my gosh. That let we've me, ever done. Oh, my gosh. Let me tell you, I am so excited about this episode. I have It hits so many of like my favorite things. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, I just can't wait to get into it because... If you just went to this park, if you just visited the Dry Tortugas and you didn't necessarily know what you were looking for, like I was the first time, you can still be blown away and enjoy your visit. But I feel like my next visit, I'm going to be looking at it through a completely different lens. It's such a cooler place to me now than it ever was. Even when I was standing there basking in its glory... And it was so good. Okay, let's jump in. I'm excited. Fun fact number one. So the destiny of the Dry Tortugas. And the Dry Tortugas, it's got several little tiny islands. They're called Keys. There's several Keys. And it's incredibly intertwined with Florida. There is no Dry Tortugas without Florida. And so we're going to go back in time to the origin story. And we're going to talk about the beginning so that we can understand the present. And the beginning takes us back over 200 million years ago to fun fact number one. And fun fact number one is that we stole Florida from Africa. We, as in, the, <laughs> and as in America. As in America. Stole yes. Florida from Africa. We did. Stolen or accidentally given. Either way, Florida was originally part of Africa. And so that's like fun fact when it was Pangea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, no, even Florida, before that. Florida just floated across. They're like, let's get out of here. We want to go to America, too. <laughs> exactly. No, it, it's really interesting. Okay, so spoiler alert. Okay, so this analogy is going to have some spoilers for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And so if you have not read or if you're saving that book, if you're with a, with a child or something, or if you yourself haven't read it, fast forward about a minute, okay, in the podcast. Because there are some spoilers here. Okay, come with me to Britain, past the Leaky Cauldron, Diagon Alley, beyond King's Cross Station in London, and past Hogsmeade, all the way to Hogwarts Castle. 
The battle for Hogwarts has been raging for hours. He who shall not be named has just removed his evil forces from the castle, creating a short break from the fighting. It is during this break that Harry himself, alone, watches a memory given to him by Professor Snape. It's a memory of a conversation between Snape himself and Dumbledore. There they stand alone in the headmaster's office. It's dark and Dumbledore begins to speak. There will come a time when Harry Potter must be told something, but you must wait until Voldemort is at his most vulnerable. Must be told what? On the night, Lord Voldemort went to Godric's Hollow to kill Harry, and Lily Potter cast herself between them. The curse rebounded, and when that happened, a part of Voldemort's soul latched itself onto the only living thing it could find. Harry himself. There's a reason Harry can speak with snakes. There's a reason he can look into Lord Voldemort's mind. A part of Voldemort lives inside him. So after crashing into one another, North America and Africa became some of the final pieces that made up the puzzle of Pangaea. Florida was actually landlocked somewhere in the middle of Pangaea and officially part of Africa, as it had been for millions and millions of years. Now on the fateful night that Pangaea broke up, when Africa and North America tore themselves apart, Florida latched itself onto the closest thing it could find, North America. There's a reason North America has alligators, crocodiles, and snakes, and it's because a part of Africa lives inside it. Florida. The Horcrux Africa never meant to make. Oh my gosh. (laughs) What a nerd. Florida's a Horcrux. Exactly. (laughs) It's got all the snakes. Just like. You know, it does make sense. There's a lot of strange animals in Florida and stuff that just you don't find elsewhere. Exactly. Oh, it's so interesting. So the reason that we do know that it was part of Africa originally is because the bedrock is different than most of stuff in North America. And so they actually have these giant trucks that basically hit the ground over and over and over again and send shock waves deep, deep under the ground. And they listen back for the echoes. And the echoes in Florida are the same as the echoes in Africa, not the same as the echoes in North America. And so that's how they know the bedrock is different. How does that affect dry tortugas then? Okay, so that's just where it came from. Now, this is what's interesting. So as Florida latched onto North America and as Africa and North America pulled apart from each other, Florida began to sink, okay? And like Atlantis, it just sunk down into the ocean. And eventually, Florida was completely submerged. Now, this is where we learn about two really important things that have to do with the dry tortugas and Florida itself. There's two things called, there's one is the Florida platform and the other is the Florida escarpment. And Florida is incredibly flat. Like the highest point in Florida is like 345 feet tall. But oh, the average than I thought. <laughs> yeah. And the, but that's basically Alabama. It's less than a mile from Alabama is where that wow. high point is. And so the average height of all of Florida is a, like 100 feet. Mm-hmm. Now, as you go out into the ocean, if you were on the west side of the Florida Peninsula and you just pointed your boat straight out into the ocean, you could drive for like 200 miles and the ocean would never get deeper than like 300 feet. 
And so this whole area, the exposed Florida Peninsula and way out into the ocean is called the Florida Platform. Out west where Dry Tortugas is. Correct. All of it is the Florida Platform. And if you think about it, you have hundreds of miles and the variation of elevation is less than like 400 feet mm-hmm. for most of it. Mm-hmm. And so it's an incredibly large, flat platform. Mm-hmm. And so the Florida escarpment is the edge out in the ocean of the Florida platform. And so it basically goes, you leave the peninsula, you take your boat out, it's like 300 feet, 300 feet. And then all of a sudden you reach a drop off, like in Finding Nemo, the edge where Nemo touches the butt. butt. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. There's this incredibly steep drop off. It's almost vertical and it drops from 300 feet almost past 10,000 feet. Wow. Almost vertical. And and that's further west than Dry Tortugas because I'm assuming Dry Tortugas is still on the platform. Yes. The Keys are basically the boundary line Mm. of the Florida platform. And so you have all of these island chains that are near the edge of the Florida platform. And so that's why it was important to sailors. So they Mm -hmm. knew where the deep water was. And so it's really interesting. You have all of this barrier reef that built up along the edge of the Florida escarpment. But it's just really interesting because Florida, that platform isn't the Africa part. What we have to figure out is, okay, so we know Africa's down there because After it separated, Florida sunk. But what is so interesting is the Florida platform rises almost straight from the bottom of the ocean, and it's incredibly flat. So why is it that way? And it has to do with the origin story of dry tortugas. So where did this come from? Because it didn't come to us like this from Africa. It didn't get uplifted through tectonic forces, like some of the other places we've talked about in other podcast episodes. It wasn't made by volcanoes with lava flowing and making new islands like Hawaii. No, this block of land came up out of the ocean in the most unlikely of ways. It grew. I don't get it. (laughs) Okay, exactly. It grew. Okay, so this is going to lead us into fun fact number two. Most of the time, we find evidence of biology in geology. So like we see... Like fossils. Like fossils and stuff, right? In Florida, we don't just find evidence of biology in geology. Here, biology doesn't even just affect geology. Here, biology is the geology. So how can land grow? How does the earth grow? How did it grow up out of... It doesn't make any sense. Think coral. Let's go back to Finding Nemo for a second. That scene where Nemo and all of his classmates are on the back of Mr. Ray and they cruise over this amazingly beautiful and diverse and vibrant coral reef towards the drop-off. Okay, he's naming all the species. Oh, let's name the species, the species, the species. Let's name the species, species of the sea. Okay, he goes through all of that. Imagine that that scene lasts for hundreds of miles instead of just 20 seconds. Okay, over a massively huge space and then add time. One thing you can find, you can kind of see it in the Finding Nemo, is the layering of the corals, where you get one coral growing on top of another coral, growing on top of another coral. And then eventually you just have this amazing honeycomb that just builds up and builds up. 
layer upon layer, new coral growing on older coral. And it just keeps going on for generation of coral after generation of coral, thousands and thousands of years, millions of years after millions of years. And then eventually you have these corals on the bottom. There's so much pressure and they get old. And then you have all these other creatures like shrimp and crab and all of these skeletons and, and seashells filling and filtering down to the bottom and filling up the space. And then everything fills up. It gets tighter. And then over time, it turns into rock. And this literally happened for millions of years. Coral growing on top of coral, growing on top of coral for thousands and thousands of feet over time. And that is how this Florida platform grew out of the bottom of the ocean. It's all coral. They call like it stacked coral. Yeah. That's and they call it crazy. Car- they call it carbonate rock. And in the Florida platform, the main forms of it are limestone and dolomite, but it just keeps building up. And this is where the Beach Boys come along. Key Largo Mm -hmm. is actually, there's a whole limestone group called the Key Largo Limestone. And that's only like 150 feet thick at the best. And that you can find in a lot of the keys now. But it's amazing because... Key Largo isn't the only place that has limestone. It goes down for so far. And this is fun fact number two. The carbonate rock that we have been building up for millions of years that came from coral and the skeletons of sea life and and all the seashells and things literally raised the Florida platform from the bottom of the ocean straight up and is estimated to be more than 15,000 feet thick. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to compute that. That's crazy. I mean, because that whole area, and I'm sure you'll talk about this, but the whole area of the Keys right there is like a giant coral reef still. Right. Exactly. So that makes sense that that's still continuing even today. A million, I don't know, how long does it take to build a layer of coral? Millions (laughs) of years from now, the coral that is in this coral reef that we can see at the Keys right now will just be another layer right. of the Florida platform. Yes, exactly. Cool. And so that's why it's so cool. It's like this giant building block of coral carbonate rock life that just comes up out of the bottom of the ocean. It's so cool. It's the third largest barrier reef, this section along the Keys, including Dry Tortugas, but also like Key West and everything up there. It's all part of this amazingly diverse and beautiful coral reef system. And it's an inherited coral reef system. This is something that's this, we're just seeing the current generation. So dry tortugas, is that just made of limestone? Is that like the Key Largo limestone too? Those keys, like what are those keys made out of that brought them out of the ocean, I guess? This is an important thing that we kind of need to learn too. So I'll answer that question. There is a lot of limestone. That's kind of like when you're building homes or building buildings in in Key Largo and stuff, a lot of the stuff, the foundation stones that you'll find most likely are going to be limestone and things like that. A lot of the sand is actually newer than any of the the rock because some a lot of that the the sand comes from sediments from like the Mississippi and erosion and mm-hmm. things like that. That's new stuff. But there's like a current. This is what I learned. Because there's like a current from the Mississippi River where it comes into the Gulf Coast. Yep. That basically takes everything right past dry tortugas. 
Yep, that's part of it. So, yep. so yeah, that would make sense that the sand might come from there because the water is naturally flowing in this current yes. out there. So. Oh, we're going to learn more about currents in a little bit and how important they are. In terms of the formation of what you're seeing, why these islands are here, why not just continue to build up that? So one thing that's really interesting to know is that Florida is an incredible bellwether for what the average climate on Earth is like. And what I mean by that is... Bellwether? Yeah, Has anyone so, ever used that word in a sentence before? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, okay, so let me tell you about my grandpa. So my so Grandpa Nud had a rock outside of his house, and he called it his, like, his weather rock. And when it was raining... If, if it was wet, if it was wet, you knew it was raining, is what right. he would say. If it was dry, it was sunny outside. If there was snow on it, it was snowing. It was a really silly thing, but he had this big rock that was hanging from like a tripod, and it was his weather stone. But Florida is basically that. What was happening throughout these millions of years, as Earth's climate heats up and as it cools, Florida is the perfect elevation. If you want to know what the world is like, you just look at Florida because as the world gets hot, as the average temperature rises, glaciers disappear. The glaciers melt and sea level rises. As the earth cools, glaciers appear. They suck up a lot of the water that's in the earth and seawater drops. And so this Florida platform has gone through multiple changes of the sea level going up and down and up and down. And when the sea level rises, the corals build up. When sea levels drop, the corals die and islands basically, the, the, the corals die, they kind of get ground down a little bit and they become more limestoney on top. Hmm. And so it's really interesting. And so all you have to look at to know what's going on in the world is look at Florida because there have been times when Florida has been two to three times bigger than it is now, exposed rock. And there have been times where it's literally just like a, a couple of islands that are exposed. And so right before the last ice age, the earth was hot. And so the sea level was high and these corals, this massive platform of corals built up especially along the Florida escarpment on the south side, where we find the Keys now. And I think that's probably because if they're closer to more water, it's less likely that they'll be exposed for a long period of time when they're closer to the main body of the ocean. Right, because they're right at that drop-off. Exactly. And so they built up really high, and then the Ice Age came during the Pleistocene and sucked up all of that seawater and put it into glaciers. And so sea level dropped a lot. And then when that sea level dropped, it exposed the keys and they became the island chain that we see today. And so as the world has kind of warmed up a little bit, then the islands, the, the keys became sandy and everything like that. But So in exploring Dry Tortugas episode that we just released yesterday or last week. Right. I talked about how I get scared on islands because and Key West feels like it could just like disappear right at any time and for the record if you didn't listen to the other episode key west is like the jumping off point to get out to dry tortugas right so key west is as far west in the florida keys as the road goes mm -hmm. and you stop there and then you have to take a boat or a plane out to dry tortugas which is further west right than that so what you're saying is that key west 
disappearing and reappearing, like I said, is totally a thing. Oh, it's super normal in this era. In geologic time, happens all the time. Yeah. So I am justified in my fear of that. Yes, you definitely are. <laughs> a little bit more glaciers melting and the sea level could rise. And- it's happening now. So, yeah. you know, Key West is going to it's going to disappear again. I'm telling you. Oh, yeah. It's Which true. is why when I'm on Key West, I feel nervous. <laughs> All it takes is a, a foot of extra water, and there you go. Listen, we just put most of the buildings on stilts. They'll be fine. They'll <laughs> that be does seem fine. to be the thing to do, but I'm not convinced. Oh, yes. I'm so, not convinced. If your sandy island goes under the ocean, it doesn't matter if your house is on stilts. That reminds me of the wise man and the foolish man in the Bible. But you're built upon the rock in Key West. It's just limestone. No sand. <laughs> Sand and rock. Sand what do you rock. do then? You just have faith in the stilts <laughs> and you enjoy the beautiful turquoise water oh and the gosh. amazing temperatures. And then the fish can actually come underneath your house and yeah. you just fish there. You could build a glass floor. That would be cool. That would be cool. Actually. That would be so cool. <laughs> See, only positive things. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's basically where the dry tortugas came from. Is they're part of this island chain along the bottom of the Florida platform, along the Florida escarpment that were built up during the last high sea level period of time on Earth. And then they got exposed and then they became these beautiful island keys that we see today. Okay, cool. I like that. Yes. So the dry tortugas, they're 70 miles west of Key West. And so you get out to Key West, you still have a long way to go. But this position, the dry tortugas, where exactly they're at, became so important. And this I'm excited because normally I wait till fun fact number five to talk about the human Ooh, history. We're breaking the mold. Oh the my rest gosh. is human history, yes. I'm guessing. The best <laughs> the, the rest of this episode is the human history because it's so cool. There is it's I don't know why I went straight like beach bum right there. So cool. It's so cool, dude. It's awesome. <laughs> Listen. It's because you've been listening to Pirates of the Caribbean music for like the past five days. <laughs> I have it just cycling through my head. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, yeah, it's so good. Yeah. So I, I've known where your mind has gone with this episode as we're going to pirates, I'm sure. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Okay. So buckle up, people. We're about to have some real fun. And I'm going to take you back in a little bit. There's going to be a little bit of storytelling here. So just get prepared. But we're going to jump into the human history and it's going to blow you away, especially some of these first things I'm going to say. But about 300 years ago, in the coastal town of Bristol, England, lived a boy with his father and mother. The boy's name was Jim, and he helped his parents as they ran a somewhat secluded inn. One day, a ragged, unkept, and hard man walked through the front door. He spent his life at sea but he was not a sailor. He said to call him captain, and despite his appearance, he quickly brandished several gold coins, claimed one of the upstairs rooms, and began the daily routine of drinking large amounts of rum until the only thing left to do was drag himself up to bed. Billy Bones was his name, and most nights he was quiet and kept to himself. But every once in a while, the rum set the scoundrel loose He would bang his hands hard on the table, and you could hear him from the street as he sang, Fifteen men on a dead man's chest. 
Yo ho ho when a bottle of rum. Drink and the devil had done for the rest. Yo ho ho and a bottle of rum. He would sit at his table and bully people sitting nearby into joining him in his revelry. Crazy eyes and an overly strong grip on the shoulder conveyed a threat of violence if his demands weren't immediately obeyed. His stories were what frightened people worst of all. Dreadful stories they were, about hanging and walking the plank, and storms at sea and the dry tortugas, and wild deeds and places on the Spanish main. By his own account, he must have lived his life among some of the wickedest men that God ever allowed upon the sea. And the language in which he told these stories shocked our plain country people almost as much as the crimes that he described. Fifteen men on a dead man's chest. That's right, Ash. Pirates and sea shanties, <laughs> sword play and sea monsters, and of course, the thing that drives it all, treasure. Yeah. Okay, that story is, of course, Treasure Island, written in 1883 by Robert Louis Stevenson. And the story takes place in the mid-1700s. And while I did paraphrase much of the beginning of the book, the part where he scares people with his stories and he talks about all the terrible things that happened and actually mentions the dry tortugas was a direct quote from the book. Oh, really? Yeah. So where he talks about the dry tortugas, Robert Louis Stevenson knew that dry tortugas was the heart of a lot of what was happening in the new world. And it's so cool. And so this is kind of interesting, but the pirate stuff that we're all excited about, sometimes I can't grasp how long ago it actually happened because my American mind thinks that most of the stuff on the continent started at 1776, right? Uh Okay, so here's fun fact number three. Fun fact number three is that the Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon first discovered the dry tortugas in 1513. At first, it was named Las Tortugas, meaning the turtles, and later it became dry tortugas just to convey to sailors that it didn't have any fresh water on it. So it was dry tortugas. But here's what really blows my mind. Ash, did you realize that in the present day, right now, we are closer in years to the founding fathers and the founding of the United States, than the founders were to the discovery of the dry tortugas. Ah, Yes. If you calculate the math, here's the math. From 2023, it's 247 years to the founders in 1776. From 1776, it was 263 years to the discovery of dry tortugas. And it's even further. It's 284 till Columbus discovered the new world. Okay, where's Ponce de Leon from? Spain. Oh, he's Spanish? He's from Spain, yes. Isn't that nuts, though? Like, you think, in my mind, I think, okay, 1492, Columbus sailed, and then the pilgrims arrived sometime, and then 1776, baby! But, honestly, there's a huge amount of time in there. And they found dry tortugas in that amount of time, which (laughs) I think would be way harder than finding America. Well, yeah, you would think so. But Florida was actually discovered after the dry tortugas. Oh, for real? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, so what they discovered first was Hispaniola, 
where Dominican Republic and Haiti, Haiti. and Jamaica, yeah. all all a lot of that stuff was discovered first. And Juan Ponce de Leon, he was the first governor of Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And he actually was removed. The reason he discovered the dry tortugas and Florida was because he was removed from office. And then what do you do when you're removed from office in that time period? You sail the high seas. <laughs> you, sail the, you go find another place to be governor. And so that's what he did. He left Puerto Rico and he started sailing and he went out into the Gulf of Mexico. He circled around, discovered the dry tortugas, and then came back through the channel and then landed St. Augustine area. Right, yeah. St. Augustine is like the oldest town in America. Yeah. That's crazy. And Ponce de Leon, like, I've heard his name while we're in Florida. Yes. Too. So, I mean, I know he must have stayed there. (laughs) He was unsuccessful in what he was trying to accomplish in settling Florida. So he didn't. Oh, interesting. He was injured by an arrow from like a native. And then he ended up dying back in... I think it was Hispaniola, but I'm not exactly sure where he actually ended up dying. He retreated from Florida and went somewhere else. Exactly. Interesting. Unless you believe the legends. Which I do. Which the legends, if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean and it's on Stranger Tides, there's a whole major plot line of that movie is how Juan Ponce de Leon spent his last years looking for the fountain of youth. And so there's actually a scene where you find his boat, you find his skeleton, and he's holding the map to the fountain of youth. And Captain Barbosa and Jack Sparrow are basically sitting on a bed with the skeleton of Juan Ponce de Leon. For reals? Yes. I do not remember that. (laughs) That's funny. Okay, but here's the thing. Those legends are way older than the movie. And so all I'm saying is maybe there's a chance that in 500 years since he died, basically, maybe it's just a long game of telephone. We're missing some of the details here. And maybe he really did find the Fountain of Youth. Maybe. Maybe. Interesting. (laughs) It's so cool. But anyways, Juan Ponce de Leon found dry tortugas okay so that's the discovery and that's where the very beginning of this goes and that's where the name comes from like he said he named it lost tortugas which means the turtles exactly so there are a lot of turtles i didn't remember that they did call it dry tortugas to let sailors know there's no fresh water here yes exactly which makes why there's like a fort and everything which i'm sure you'll get into but makes it even more interesting that there's like no natural water <laughs> yes. that you can drink. Yes, exactly. So back to Juan Ponce de Leon just for a second. The reason why he left Hispaniola, the reason why a lot of these men, a lot of these explorers left and went to different islands and different places was in search of what? Gold. Treasure and gold. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So these next 300 years, basically, from when Ponce de Leon discovered the dry tortugas, And the next 300 years are insane. They're crazy. It's such a crazy time. So much was taken from the new world. Okay. And I think we underestimate the amount of wealth that was being transported on these ships headed back to Spain. Seeing that much wealth, it's almost as if it put a spell on people. If you ask me, I think nobody said it better than Captain Barbosa himself from the original Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. 
Elizabeth Swan is in the captain's quarters with Barbosa. The dinner table is set with delicious food. Captain Barbosa is flaunting the single gold coin that he took from her. You don't know what this is, do you? This is Aztec gold, one of 882 identical pieces they delivered in a stone chest to Cortez himself. Blood money paid to stem the slaughter he wreaked upon them with his armies. But the greed of Cortez was insatiable. So the heathen gods placed upon the gold a terrible curse. Any mortal that removes but a piece from that stone chest shall be punished for eternity. There is one way we can end our curse. All the scattered pieces of Aztec gold must be restored and the blood repaid. And thanks to you, we have the final piece. Okay? So the part where he says that the greed of Cortez was insatiable is so accurate. It's so true. In the first 60 years or so since Columbus arrived in the New World, more than 100 tons of gold were taken from the New World back to Spain. In today's money, that's somewhere between five and six billion dollars, which is insane. And that's just in the first 60 years. And that's just the Spanish. And then you add in the French, the English, the Dutch, and the Portuguese, And then just add time, more and more time. And the amount of wealth extracted from the new world is almost unfathomable. And it all had to travel by boat. Right. (laughs) Okay. And so today we travel completely differently. Our travel patterns are completely divorced from the movements of the natural world. Planes and boats just point their noses where they want to go. It doesn't matter what the ocean currents are really doing, you know? And But back then, all of these people, all of these boat captains, all the sailors, they had to be super in tune with both the wind and the natural movement of the sea. And this is where the strategic importance of the dry tortugas comes into play. All of these ships heading back to the old world would make their plans around utilizing the ocean currents. The big one that they would need to catch is the Gulf Stream. I'm sure you've heard of that. Mm-hmm. The Gulf Stream originating in the Gulf of Mexico, this ocean current made ocean travel so much easier for ships heading to Europe. And guess what important landmark sailors used to make sure they stayed on track? The Dry Tortugas! The Dry Tortugas! Exactly. It was perfect in all directions. Coming into the Gulf, going out of the Gulf, it was the perfect landmark. And it was perfect for navigating currents. It was perfect for navigating shallow versus deep water and perfect for treasure hunters and perfect for pirates. Okay. In old Western movies, like when you see like a train robbery, where does the scene always start? Like right before the train robbery even starts, where do you usually see the robbers? Watching the train from the sagebrush. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You usually see like the the robbers are up on a hill on their horses just waiting for the train, right? Right. It's the same way with stagecoaches. But basically the reason they're standing there is they're... Because they know the route. Exactly. They know exactly where the train's going to go or exactly where the stagecoach is going to go. Exactly. Otherwise, they would have to search out their prey, Right. right? Pirates did the exact same thing. Because all the ships used the Gulf Stream that went right past Dry Tortugas. (laughs) Exactly. They didn't have to go after it at all. Oh, it's so easy. 
instead of searching and combing the entire Gulf Coast or going through the whole Caribbean, if you know where the gold is going to be, you just sit and wait. Yeah. That's all you have to do. And so that's what all of these pirates had to do. Okay. So obviously with that in mind, you can think, oh, this is the perfect situation for piracy to flourish. You've got all of this gold being extracted from the new world, heading back to the old world. Okay. So obviously you can see how that would be perfect situation. But there is one more thing that really set the new world on fire when it comes to pirates. Have you ever heard of the terms corsair or buccaneer or privateer? Okay. Mm -hmm. For the most part, they're all synonyms for the word pirate. Corsairs were pirates in the Mediterranean. Buccaneers were pirates in the Caribbean. But when is piracy not illegal? When everybody's doing it and there's no one to <laughs> enforce anything. Even simpler than that. Oh. When is piracy not a crime? When it's legal. Oh. When it's not actually a crime. Oh, <laughs> they didn't care. Well, no, it's even more. Than, it's worse than that. A privateer is a pirate with a thumbs up from the government. So, Well, that makes sense because you have all these nations from Europe and... <laughs> You know, if the Spaniards are bringing out a boatload of gold, why wouldn't the Dutch come in and be like, let's just take that? Exactly. During this time, everybody wanted a piece of the Free treasure. Free for all. Oh, yeah. Everybody wanted something coming out of the New World. In one of the last Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Captain Barbosa actually becomes a privateer. Like he's working for an English nobleman or something like that. And so, but that happened all the time. And so the Dutch, the Portuguese, the French, the Spanish, the English, they were all competing and fighting one another for land. And why not use all of these people who were here already for the treasure? Just sign them up on your team right. instead of everybody else's. And some of these guys became national heroes. We've all heard of Blackbeard, the Captain Blackbeard. Well, some of the most successful pirates of all time were men like Sir Francis Drake and William Kidd who pillage and plunder and rifle and loot, all in the name of king and country. They were basically... Really? I don't remember that from the history books at all. <laughs> I have heard of Francis Drake, and I do not recall them saying that he was a pirate. That would have been way more interesting in my middle school mind. Oh my gosh. No, it's so crazy. You have all of these, and a lot of these privateers, in saying it with air quotes, people, all of these privateers, a lot of them had the, well, they're more guidelines than actual rules. Right. Kind of a mindset. Yeah, we're on the English team, but that English ship looks like it's weighed down with a lot of treasure. <laughs> Somebody was on the French privateer or a Spanish privateer. A lot of them attacked their own team's boats and a lot of them made money off of pirating their own stuff. It's like it's, watching five-year-olds play soccer. Yes. <laughs> that person's on your team. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so you have this incredible situation where there's never been more treasure being transported by boat ever. And so you have people already trying to take it. And then you have governments getting in on the action. And this place was wild long before the West was ever wild. Mm -hmm. This was the original Wild West. The New World was crazy. This is going to lead us into fun fact number four, that it wasn't that just pirates that made it dangerous for sailors transporting 
gold and treasure back and forth between the old world. Nature was after these guys too. Hurricanes, hidden dangers in the waters like shallow reefs and sandbars, they all took a toll on ships, in addition to the crazy number of pirates and privateers combing the seas. There is so much treasure at the bottom of the sea near Dry Tortugas, and this is fun fact number four, is that there are more than 200 known shipwrecks within the boundaries of Dry Tortugas National Park. What? In the boundaries of the National Park? Yes. You're kidding me. No. There are so many sunken ships inside even just the boundaries of Dry Tortugas National Park. That's crazy because the National Park is not that big, especially just the sea all around the Florida Keys and stuff. I mean, there's got to be thousand shipwrecks out there if you yes. know if you count all of it but that's crazy that there's that many within the boundaries of the national park exactly okay now a minute ago i called these people that i'm about to talk about treasure hunters but back then they called themselves wreckers and these wreckers would go out and they would salvage whatever cargo they could from shipwrecks and sunken ships mm-hmm. this was so profitable that Key West became one of the world's richest cities during the 19th century. And so oh my gosh, there was there so... were just wreckers going out and just pulling gold out of the ocean. Yes. And, oh my gosh. And the tradition is not done yet. I remember them talking about this on the ferry where it's like, there's still gold under us, you know? <laughs> and it's like, um, excuse me? How do I get this job? There are still people alive today that are keeping the tradition of wreckers alive. In 1985, a man named Mel Fisher found the site of a shipwreck. The ship was named Nuestra Señora de Atoka off the coast of Key West. It was sunk during a hurricane in 1622. It contained 40 tons of gold and silver (laughs) and about 70 pounds of Colombian emeralds. In today's money, it was valued around $400 million. In 1985? (laughs) 1985. Listen, why aren't we talking about this? (laughs) Why isn't this a thing? That would make for so much better news than what's on the news now. (laughs) And that ship, Nuestra Señora de Atoca, She was part of a multi-ship group, a group of, I don't even know how to say that. Okay. A multi-ship group. (laughs) Okay. What's a a herd of ships? Uh, (laughs) An armada is kind of what you would call them. (laughs) Yeah. But But not big enough, maybe. Right. But that hurricane that sunk that ship wasn't the only ship that sunk. And so Mel Fisher, he's crazy wealthy now. But he's also got business and a company that is still searching for the other ships oh that my sunk gosh. in that hurricane. And so wreckers are still finding so much treasure in this area. You know what? My dad is about to retire. <laughs> and my whole my whole life he has talked about wanting to buy a catamaran and just like live on his catamaran after he retires. Mm-hmm. I just feel like that would be the perfect job for him. Oh, my gosh. He's from Florida. He already likes the ocean and the weather and stuff. But, like, how do you get a job with Mel? (laughs) I don't know. All your dad needs is some scuba gear, 
a metal detector. Yeah, I was going to say a really big metal detector. (laughs) (laughs) But Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That would be so cool. This just goes to show you that back to Billy Bones talking about the dry tortugas, the dry tortugas were at the heart of all of this. All of this. I mean, Key West was probably the big city because I don't know if it had fresh water or something, but the dry tortugas was the main landmark to all of these ships carrying immense amounts of treasure going back and forth between the new and old world. The dry tortugas, that was the landmark everybody was looking for. And so it was the heart, the heart of the wild west of the Caribbean. And so so it's such a unique place, which ultimately leads me to 1776 and kind of the American chapter. Mm-hmm. of all of this. Yeah. If nothing else, this episode should convey how important this corridor between Florida and Cuba was and still is obviously. Sailors saw it as the easiest and despite the dangers, the safest and fastest way back across the Atlantic. Pirates saw it as a bottleneck or like a choke point for a lot of their prey. But despite it all, there was always one thing that each and every country operating in the area knew. And that that was that if any country was able to control this strip of ocean, that would mean almost ultimate power in the region. Mm-hmm. Okay. In terms of shipping, trade, resource extraction, and transportation, power in this area meant power in the world. And how better for a young country to exert its influence on the world around it than by controlling and protecting this area, this oceanic superhighway for itself. And so in 1776, we beat the British. But between 1819 and 1821, we negotiated with Spain for the purchase of Florida. In 1822, as soon as that purchase was finalized. Which was a bad decision, if you ask me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Spain made a bad choice. yeah. In 1822, as soon as all this was finalized, after the United States officially takes ownership of Florida, the United States looks to do just that. It begins planning ways to exert control over this oceanic highway, and it has its eyes focused. Boom. Dry Tortugas. Right on Dry Tortugas. Yeah. Exactly. And so from 1822 for the next 25 years, intensive planning and surveying continued until they were finally ready. And in 1847, construction began on what would become a fort among forts, a military installation among military installation, a symbol of strength in the area unmatched by any other A symbol to the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico, like the Colosseum, was a symbol of strength in Rome. An unmistakable illustration of your power in the region. And this brings us to fun fact number five. Fun fact number five is that Fort Jefferson, located on Garden Key in Dry Tortugas, is the largest masonry fort in the Western Hemisphere. It was built out of 16 million bricks, has three stories, six sides, and was built to house 1,500 soldiers who would man 450 cannons. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And I have walked through that fort and they told us 
because when you get there, you're like, this is so random that yeah. there's a giant fort right here. Uh-huh. And they tell you, well, it's right by the Gulf Stream. And so, you know, but like, I just, I didn't understand just the immensity of wealth that was going through this and why you would need such a big, strong fort in the middle of right. the Florida Keys. Oh, I mean, it's yeah. crazy. Oh, yeah. In today's world, it makes zero sense. In the old world, it makes it complete genius. sense. Absolutely genius. It was an unmistakable illustration of strength. And some of these cannons that you can still see there today, some of the largest, they're called Parrot or Rodman cannons. The Parrot rifled cannon weighed 26,000 pounds and was designed to fire 300-pound projectiles over five miles. How do they even get a cannon <laughs> to these remote islands? Like, like you would have to have a massive, strong ship <laughs> oh my to gosh. be able to carry something that heavy. Well, and but the, the Rodman cannon weighs over 50,000 pounds. Oh my gosh. And could fire a 440-pound shell three and a half miles. God. And so it's just absolutely crazy. And th there's a scene in the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, okay, where you've got the governor, Elizabeth Swan. She's been, she's been proposed to, but it's nighttime. The Black Pearl pulls up to Port Royal, okay? And then all of a sudden you start to hear, what's that? Cannon fire, you know? And then mm -hmm. the Black Pearl just starts to blow apart Port Royal. As watch, I'm watching this movie, Jack Sparrow's up in the hill in this jail. He's watching all this happen. And I'm thinking to myself, sitting in the audience, there's no way cannons could shoot that far. There's no way they could do this much damage. Are you kidding me? No. Are they totally a 440 pound cannonball shot three and a half miles would tear apart anything that it hits. That's so crazy. <laughs> and so this place was a stronghold among strongholds, a fortress among fortresses, okay? And you may be thinking, well, five miles at sea really isn't that far. Well, yes, but also the Dry Tortugas was protecting harbors that would house the warships of the United States of America. And so you may be able to stay out of range of these cannons, but you cannot stay out of range of America's warships. And so this entire area, this fort sent a message throughout the whole new world that this new country is here to stay. Mm -hmm. And it's so cool. And it's so big. And in fact, it did such a good job of deterring America's enemies that it never actually had to be used. It never actually even had to be completely finished. Because Fort Jefferson, when you're holding that strong of a weapon in your arsenal... The best thing about it is you never have to use it. Right. The intimidation factor. Exactly. It sent the right message. Nobody challenged control for that part of the ocean, and it was now safe. Pirates, privateers, nobody even tried. And since nobody ever dared challenge the U.S., it was actually used as a military prison for a while. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It housed a few notable prisoners, like the doctor that set the broken leg of John Wilkes Booth. He, and so he went to military prison. He went to military prison. Okay. Yep. And in today's world, we don't see the purpose of this place. And so as the world changed from this old 
every boat is sailing by the power of the wind to coal in steamships. And then we have diesel engines in our ships now. As the world changed, you don't have to go just with the ocean currents. A lot in the world changed. And so the way that the United States utilized Fort Jefferson changed as well. And so for a long time, it was used as a military prison. And in the world wars, it was actually used as a coal station where warships would get the coal that they needed to travel across the ocean. But eventually Fort Jefferson and Dry Tortugas fell out of use and dropped out of mainstream knowledge and culture. And today it's managed by the National Park Service as Dry Tortugas National Park. And you can still see Fort Jefferson standing tall out of the ocean, ever vigilant and striking against the turquoise ocean. A true relic of the area's oceanic past, the last great symbol of an era that began more than half a millennia ago, when it was the golden age for exploration and the sea was rank with pirates and privateers. A symbol louder than Billy Bones himself singing, 15 men on a dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho, and a bottle of rum. Thanks for exploring the national parks with us. Please share, like, and subscribe. And if you need any help planning your own trip, click on over to dirtinmyshoes.com. See you next week. Same time, same place. And don't forget to get some dirt in your shoes.